boy, budge. Over the next while, 30, 50, 100 years, it's going to affect Bangkok, it's going to affect London, it's going to affect Sydney. We are now seeing bushfires all over Australia, Greece, the US. We are seeing right across New Zealand, um, you know, cyclones, flooding, flooding across Australia. We are now feeling and seeing it more and more. And is it now that we're touching and feeling it, that we're finally going, oh, this is real? If everyone's going to electric vehicles, then they get that electricity from a coal-fired power plant, mm. which loses 60% of the energy mm. it produces through cooling towers. Mm. And, and so it's kind of ironic. In this episode of Budge, How to Fudge Being Human, we talk climate change, the environment, and human capability to accept and adapt with a good friend of Budge and climate change expert, Ben Barden. With so much of misinformation out there around climate change, how do we get humans to accept the science and make the urgent changes we need to ensure that we can call this place home for a long time to come? We hope you love the podcast and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Welcome to Budge, How to Fudge Being Human, the podcast that helps you figure out how to be better at being human. What are Greta Thunberg fans and Donald Trump fans have in common? They're both screwed by climate change, irrespective if they believe in it or not. Um, today we'll be talking about that and the impact on humans um, with, as always, Dr. Darren Coppin, my good mate and co-host, behavioural scientist. Each time you say, as always, the always <laughs> is like a disappointment. It is, it is. It's, it's a behavioural science around that. <laughs> you right, mate. <laughs> as, al- as always, Dr. Darren Coppin. <laughs> and we're delighted to have here another good mate of ours, uh, Ben Barden, who we both know through the vocational education sector but actually now works in climate change, uh, work with a whole range of companies supporting them as this world changes. Welcome, mate. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, yeah, that's my pleasure, apart from Darren. (laughs) As as always, Darren's here. It's awkward because it's his house. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Difficult to escape. Yeah. Thanks, mate, for joining us. I guess um, to kick off, we we both know you through uh, the employment services sector and, Mm. and vocational education and training, but you now do a lot of work in climate change. Why, Why the move, mate? Why the change? Well, it's not been a change. I've run the things in parallel for about the last 15 years. Mm. And um, I set up my consulting business to do strategic planning with agencies. And of course, different organisations have to deal with the impacts of climate change on their business. Um, and there have been, you know, remarkable changes in the last in the last five years in particular. Um, as part of their risk and assessment and risk analysis of the big mega trends that are going to affect their business over the medium and longer term, Um, And more recently, it's become sort of very prescient um, that impacts are being felt year by year. So um, progressive companies uh, need to have a lens on climate change and how the policy environment is going to adapt to make the changes that we all need to make. And we're going to talk in depth about the impact on business and humans as we go, you know, some of the changes we have to make uh, and talk around concepts such as managed retreat. Um, but before that, you know, let's get over this argument of if climate change is real. It's real. But I'd love to understand, Dr. Darren, why do we still have this problem that some people will not accept the science of it? Well, there's always going to be a 2%, I think it is, at the last thing. 98% of papers and, and academics are saying it's real. You'd probably get 2% of priests that don't believe in God. Yeah, so, um, but the, the reason is that... Um, I feel they might be in the wrong profession. <laughs> or have the wrong motivations. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, um, look, humans are great at hope. It's a strength. Mm. So we're always hoping. 
um, that, that it's not real. Um, but it's also that, that thing, that present bias, where unless it's we can feel it, touch it, and immediately be impacted by it, um, then we don't necessarily believe in it. However, that's why there seems to be more of a change in the last five years in particular, um, is that it is impacting people directly. And, and is that the change? So the change in, in views towards it isn't necessarily then that this disbelief in science or we won the argument. It's the fact, I guess, I guess both of you, that we are now seeing bushfires all over Australia, Greece, the US. I think there were, there were, there were, there were forest fires in the UK, I think, last year. Yeah. We are seeing right across New Zealand, um, you know, cyclones, flooding, flooding across Australia. We are now feeling and seeing it more and more. And is it now that we're touching and feeling it that we're finally going, oh, this is real? Yeah, I think I, my observation is that the lived experience over the last few years has, has been a game changer. When you think about the 2019 fires and you think about, um, you know, it was an area about the size of the UK burnt. And um, we were affected out here in central west New South Wales with weeks and weeks of smoke and fires. And... You know, you had to move your stuff into a, a safe place. So the lived experience over the last um, five years in particular um, has not so much changed people's minds, but it's ch certainly changed their voting intentions um, as it got up the prioritised list of things that people were worrying about. And, and the research is that about 65%, 64 or 65% of people believe they will be directly harmed by climate change in wow. Australia. Um, in, in their lifetime. So so we're talking about the elections, of course, there, uh, mention of Australia in terms of the elections. And we, we are, of course, recording this in Australia. We are out every Tuesday, 7 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Please uh, like and subscribe down below on YouTube or connect with us in our Facebook group. So we are now finally seeing then people starting to believe in this. Well, aside from that um, lived experience, is there any reason, I suppose, behaviourally that we start to believe this, Dan? No. <laughs> end, end of my contribution yeah well it's probably your best so far mate losses. there is something so people think Americans don't believe in climate change well, that's not necessarily the case it might be some politicians and, and, and vociferous ones don't um, but Harvard uh, sorry Yale uh, they kill me at Harvard uh, and Yale for saying that but Yale did a, a survey and they found that 51% of Americans it's not that they don't believe in it they feel helpless and hopeless in trying to address anything to do with climate change. And I think that's one of the biggest issues is what is it I can do as an individual to make any sort of difference? Um, and the news about um, the climate is, is invariably desperate and catastrophic, potentially. Um, and that actually makes people helpless. And we know that most, in fact, all animal species that they've experimented on, if you make them feel helpless, they become inactive. And that's the problem. Humans have become inactive in this because they feel helpless. So if you've got 51% of Americans feeling that it's hopeless to address climate change, then they curl up, conserve energy and give up. And, and is there anything we could do to change that? Yeah, you can change it by um, broadcasting the successes, the things that we are doing well. And it, it's about building agency and self-efficacy against the thing that you think that you can control and improve the future. You're having an impact. The things that you're doing, the recycling, the ozone layer has got smaller because we moved away from CFCs or whatever. We can address it and we need to do more of what we're doing. Um, and and you're, you're making an impact. And that will accelerate people's activity and action 
if they feel that there's a point to it all. It's not pointless. And the great irony in all this, I suppose, is that we finally now believe it because we're experiencing it. You know, the, the threats of the last 20, 30, 40 years of the fact that we're going to have floods and fires uh, and what may come is, is we're now experiencing it. And that's been the thing that's actually made us finally believe it. Uh, do you feel confident now, Ben, that we're at a point where by utilising that, we can actually start to make the changes we need? Um, well, uh, what I'd say so far is that the answer um, uh, is no. We, we haven't made the changes that we need to make so far. And the primary metric on that is the parts per million of carbon dioxide and the equivalent gases in the, in the oxygen, uh, in, the, in the atmosphere, which has um, steadily increased. And the rate of increase um, has, uh, has become steeper. Uh, so well, what are we looking at, mate? Is there a point in time where if we don't fix this, we truly will never turn it around? Yeah, we're pretty close to that point, I think. Yeah. And, and so when you have a look at the climate scientists, a lot of them are sort of dropping their heads. It's like, well, we've been screaming at you for 30 years to try and do something about this. And um, we had a window and the window is really uh, closing. And 420 parts per million what used to be the point that people would say well that's about where um uh, irreversible tipping points are going to occur uh, we're there now when i was born it was 317 parts wow. per million um you know before the industrial revolution it was 280 parts per million so the background level um was uh was through the Halocene period was, you know, we had 10,000 years of a, of a self-balancing climate that supported the, the, the type of um, growth of humanity that we've seen. Um, and so uh, have we reached a critical threshold um, in terms of people's attitudes to want to make changes? Possibly. Possibly. When you have a look at um, per people's uh, willingness to take personal responsibility, um, the Pew Research Center um, d does this internationally. Which I believe in Washington. It is, it is. And so, um, you know, they, it, it shows that 79% of, um, of people in Australia are prepared to, take, prepared to take action. So actually, the way that we frame it is really important. I actually, the evidence seems to be that populations are well ahead of their um, respective governments on this. How, how drastic, though, does that level of change have to be? I, I assume we're reaching that point now where we have to make changes to our lifestyles, which is so drastic, that then leads me to a question in a minute for Darren, which is, can humans even do this? Uh, it, it can be done. And when you have a look at the, the sorts of things that are making a difference um, in other countries, because Australia, where we're broadcasting from, has been very slow and it's been a very highly contested place, uh, space, but... Um, but that's an interesting point, isn't it? It's, it's only when you go overseas from Australia, you remember how the rest of the world isn't actually thinking like us on a number of things, but particularly climate change. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, um, Margaret Thatcher was a very conservative politician, but she was also a scientist and she um, promulgated uh, the, cli the clim climate science way back in the early 80s. And so... In it, the ironically, is, is Thatcher... Someone that can give us hope. As a Liverpool fan, I can't believe I've just said that. But but if you look at it, what wasn't it Thatcher that effectively phoned up Ronald Reagan one day and said, right, you need to get on board on, on was it aerosols and CFCs? And that's actually impacted yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. ozone layer. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that led to the Montreal um, yeah. Agreement and the, uh, the, that actually saved us. Yeah, I mean, it was a very present uh, threat. We, we only had a few years left. 
and there were ready alternatives. And so it was like, okay, well, we can still make money, guys, you know. Yeah. Um, and so they they switched to the alternative. I, I saw something on on the internet the other day um, in a comment section about you know whatever happened to that ozone layer thing, you know, and and uh, why people, you know, that was all just nonsense. No one cares on about that anymore. But my understanding is because we did something about it. Yeah. Well, it's still the hole is still there, and it's just yep. progressively getting smaller. But yep. skin cancers, um, for example, uh, have tripled um, or thereabouts, but mm. because of the lack of um, the protection through the ozone layer. Mm. So uh, we acted just about in time, and so possibly that's the the learning that we can take from from the dealing with aerosols, but. When you have a look at what governments who want to do something are doing, it really falls into four categories. And uh, the first is that they they actually provide uh, substitutes for fossil fuels, a lot of um, solar on roofs, a lot of, um, you know, large scale solar, wind, uh, batteries, pumped hydro, those sorts of things. Um, Then there's a uh, there's a whole suite of policies that you can do to reduce emissions in other ways. Um, uh, and that's, you know, there, there, there are myriad examples, but a lot of it lives in the sort of waste stream, stopping the waste stream, um, looking at where emissions occur and, and trying to design out uh, those things. Some of it is substituting um, to, you know, get people using public transport. There's just yeah. a, a lot less. Which, which causes a huge problem in Australia because the size of the country. But... Yeah, that's right. So there are changes that need to be made, but um, a lot of it can be uh, part of the way that urban centres and, um, and and country towns are design the, their growth um, strategy uh, around being, you know, a 10 minute city is what Port Macquarie describes it as itself as and most, mm. most uh, cities are aspiring to have services and so forth within 15 minutes of where people live. So cycling, walking um, and taking public transport becomes a real real possibility. But, you know, the other areas uh, that governments that want to do stuff uh, are doing is to mitigate or adapt the direct impacts of global heating. So um, better insulation for houses, uh, better building standards, those sorts of things. Mm. And then, and then, fourthly, the things that they do is they 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 get on the um, the bandwagon with the global movement and and um, align themselves to this. And increasingly, you can see from uh, mechanisms, carbon adjustment mechanisms are being put in place. You can't dodge it any longer, um, and and nor should we be able to. But uh, progressive governments are the ones that are driving global action because it's a global issue, right? So, Absolutely. Uh, Darren, are, are humans capable of making the, the, the level of change that we need to make? Yeah, but there's, there's that immediacy thing. So when it's staring us in the face, um, when there's immediate impacts, which there have been more of, um, then we'll kick into gear. But um, and then we and a lot of people think that uh, look, when it gets really bad, our governments, our budgets, our science will come in and fix it. But one of the points Ben made was, well, the trouble is there's a lag behind the tipping point and the impact beyond which you can do nothing. Mm. It's like when you break going really fast, you know, you've got 100 feet of skidding that you're not in control of before before the crash. And, and it's whether we're in the point where we can break or whether we're in that skid. Um, and, and the thing is, it's intangible. Um, so that, that, that's the problem we've got. A lot of us hope... When it's really when the shit hits the fan, we'll be able to pull out like we did with COVID. We'll all be able to group together, and science and governments and budgets will be able to fix this for us. Um, but it might be too late by then. So that brings us back to Ben's point about progressive governments, right? So, so say there is a will, 
what do we do about the nations that have no interest in this? And I, I suppose Australia was at one point the pariah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Both rich and a big emitter mm. um, per capita, one of the biggest in the world. Mm. Um, and um, because we make money out of um, fossil fuel interests, uh, we, we were we didn't want to make a make a change, and so we tried to find any excuse to say, "Oh well, we we don't burn it here, so it's not our problem." Yeah, it's um, a great yeah. point. Two thirds of Australia's emissions are actually in other countries because we've sent the coal overseas yeah. for them to burn. So it was an easy fix then for us on that one, really. <laughs> well, we need the money, so yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, do we? I mean, when you price when you price um, carbon pollution as an externality, where you don't put a price on it, um, where um, it can be done for free, it can be done somewhere else and you ignore your responsibility there, you end up paying billions and billions to deal with the consequences of it. Um, you have a look at uh, New Zealand at the moment and the reconstruction that's going to be required after um, Cyclone Gabrielle last weekend. You know, like um, the actual costs of dealing with this thing is enormous. And in fact, one of the, one of the things from, uh, that was published last week by Chatham House in, in London was um, they were saying... Are we allowed to discuss that? No, not outside of you. Yeah, um, I'll tell you the key points, and that's what it was. No, they, uh, they talked about a doom spiral, um, which is you're dealing with the effects of climate change so much that you don't have the budget um, or the will to be able to deal with the underlying causes. And um, that really, so, you know, you've got a virtuous circle for those progressive companies, progressive governments that are getting on board and doing stuff. Mm. Um, and individuals. Individuals want to do it, but that individual action alone um, cannot change the building regulations. Yeah. cannot change the <laughs> big picture policies that need to change. cannot change the approval of mines and fossil fuel interests. <laughs> and, um, you know, so you have to say, well, why is it that governments are lagging behind the views of their population? And it's really about how power works in, in the political system. Um, who has power and how can they affect the policy settings? Yeah, I love this Overton principle where politicians will only deal with things that, that they think, the very small amount of things that they think won't affect them. And then it really takes public perception and, and business perception to change before government's willing to change. Um, I have come up with a solution and listen to you. I mean, it's heartbreaking what's happening to New Zealand. You know, they've not only had, you know, the climate change stuff, the floods, the cyclones, but of course now previously earthquakes. We just need to tell Australians it's going to end up with more Kiwis living in Australia. <laughs> and we'd probably, we'd probably be helping them as well as ourselves. Um, but there is a lot of positives out of Australia. You know, if, if we need to promote positives for um, people to be activated, um, you know, isn't there 2,500 new solar farms planned, 5,000 more wind turbine farms? Um, and but one of the issues I used to have was that um, if everyone's going to electric vehicles, then they get that electricity from a, a coal-fired power plant, mm. which loses sixty percent of the energy mm. it produces through the um, through cooling towers. Mm. And and so it's kind of ironic. But then what allayed my fears that these you know the energy and the amount of money goes into mining lithium to store store it and. Um, and uh, and also generate and build wind turbines is inefficient. But then it turns out that most of these things, when you fit a, a massive solar farm, 
and a massive wind turbine farm, um, they fix the prices for the next 20 years. So even though it's a big initial cost, the return as the years go by is much, much bigger. And, it's, mm. and, and with that, Australia ha is producing enough to replace the, um, uh, the, the carbon-based uh, fuels and power that, that we've got. So we've got the things in place. We've got the technology now. Yeah, we certainly have the technology and we, increasingly we've got um, the will because you, you can make money over the long term by um, having energy that's free <laughs> uh, distributed a slightly different way. So you've got a few things there, Darren. One, one is, you know, about the inevitable transition to renewables in to power the grid. Um, by about 2030, I think in New South Wales, we will have done a really massive shift from, uh, you know, 20% of um, uh, renewable energy in 2020, thereabouts, 23% or something, to, to round about 85 to 90%. And so those concerns about, oh, well, we're running our transport system, the electrification of everything goes back to coal-fired power stations. That is the transition that we're that's underway right now, um, and of course we're blessed in in Australia with wind and solar resources, which a lot of countries yeah. would, would would love to have, including know. our homeland. Yeah, that's that, right. That is an issue, isn't it? Is to to survive or to transfer to those. If you are in Northern Europe, um, Russia, the cold areas of, of China and North America, you need the storage of energy, and isn't that the inhibitive technology that's still missing a little bit no not at all i mean you know technically feasible um with with large batteries but some of the batteries are pumped hydro you know where you pump water up a hill with the renewable energy when it's yeah, generated uh, and then you draw it down through turbines like the snowy hydro scheme mm. um you draw it down and you, you actually don't need too many pumped hydro schemes to provide grid level security um, in New South Wales, maybe six or eight large um, pumped hydro schemes around some of the really large dams that exist now, uh, that would do it. So um, that technology is well understood. You, yes, sure, you need to change the transmission lines, you need to, um, to, to make the system more resilient and to plug it into where you're going to locate those things. Mm. So it's not it's not simple, but it's it's technically uh, feasible. It's within well, the in a way, it's weirdly simple. You're just pumping up water yeah. when you've got the energy, when it's sunny, yeah. and then when it's darker at night time yeah. or at peak times, you let the water run back down again and run the turbines yeah. to, to power it up. It's, it's a weirdly simple methodology, although it's probably yeah. very technical to do it. And of course, there are other positives, Ben, in that we've got more polar bear skins yeah. Uh, that we can we can use to, to keep cosy. Um, oh, I wondered why you were putting that this this mock polar bear skin at my back. Oh, it's mock, is it? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, we we kind of this is such a huge subject, and we can you know talk about some of the scientists for a while, but I want to talk about the human side. Uh, we we talked a little bit about denialists, but let's talk about the impact on humans that might come if we don't fix this, and even if we do try and fix it, what's going to happen anyway? You introduced me to a phrase, Ben, uh, that I'd never heard before. Um, uh, Thank you. <laughs> I've never heard you say that. Not from you. <laughs> managed retreat. Yeah. Mate, what is managed retreat? Because this, for me, is, is the one thing at best we can hope for in, in, in if we don't fix this. 
Well, um, managed retreat is underway in Lismore at the moment and parts, um, of, and parts of Brisbane. And uh, I might just explain that. Lismore is, uh, we're, we're in New South Wales, which is obviously the biggest state in Australia. Uh, I live in Queensland, yeah, yeah. the best state in Australia. Um, but, but Sydney, of course, is in New South Wales. And right in the northern part of New South Wales is a little town called Lismore, mm. probably 50,000, 60,000 people. Mm which has experienced such profound flooding in the last few years. Mm. Um, and, and I'll let you probably take it from there. Yeah, so the, the flooding events um, have, have just got worse and worse. Uh, it's on the confluence of three rivers, I think. And so when you get a major event, um, uh, as we had, you know, last year, um, the, it, it's, um, it's flooding to much higher, uh, much higher levels than ever before. And, I was just going to say, though, that the, the thing that human and, and humanity-wise that seems to have impacted people, having spoken to a few from that area, that moving out mm. has been renewing their house insurance. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, oh, was that a point that you were going to make to... to no, it's because really, I'm really... tapping the table. Oh. And people at home love this. <laughs> no, it's the heartbeat of the podcast, this. No, yeah. but um, because some people's house yeah. insurance has gone up tenfold and they're thinking, well, that's it. I've got to move out now. That yeah. is the tipping point. Because humans always say, oh, the, the volcano run mm. through the place or this happened. But we will rebuild. And it's like, don't. Don't move. rebuild. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. that's a bad idea. Sorry. And, and, and so the, the managed nature of that is to say that there are some areas around rivers and floodplains, which we should never have built in in the first have, place. Have, have, have you two ever been to Lismore? Yeah, have you been? To, do you, have you seen where the river is when mm. it's not flooding? Yeah, yeah, it's way down, isn't it? And the idea that that thing—it's it, actually hard to picture. I don't know what the meters are. I think it's over twenty meters. You've got this, this river running down the back of the CBD, the centre of town, and and you sort of look down at it. And when you're not there, you know, I've never been there in a flood, a flood thankfully. But you look at it and you go. How does, how does this thing actually flood this You're still town? talking about the river. You're looking <laughs> yeah. down on something. How could that get so big? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so somewhere like Lismore then, uh, what do we do? The, the, these people that live there, they shouldn't rebuild. And, and that's going to be true of places in New Zealand. Uh, we saw that, of course. I know it's climate change and earthquakes are very different things. But mm. we saw that with the earthquakes where they're not rebuilding parts of Christchurch. Mm. Is that now the answer that we have to start? We, we have to prepare businesses and we have to create an industry which is going to move massive parts of our population. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 really an interim measure uh, and it's a desperate measure and it's highly disruptive to the people who live there. Um, but um, as, as Darren was saying, you know, a lot of this is driven by the commercial realities of not being able to get insurance and knowing that there's going to, and you can't get insurance because there's going to be another flood coming through. And... Um, uh, and it's the rapidity of those things in La Nina years, the, the wet years, um, which are being exacerbated by much warmer sea surface uh, temperatures, mm. which create atmospheric rivers. And so you're getting these, um, you know, New Zealand just had over three weeks, it had broke its own records twice for the maximum number of um, millimetres of rain uh, in a day. And... In, do you, do you in, see in the, Lismore, um, it was 600 millimetres, you know, like, uh, in, in, you know. That's... And this just flooded the highest level on record in two, three hundred years. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah. Right Did you see the mayor of Auckland where he had to he had to justify his message on, on WhatsApp to his mates that he wasn't going to be able to make it to golf, he's got to do with these, deal with these media people? Mm. 
Is it, do you guys not pick up? No, no. Oh, it's brilliant. If, if, if you get the chance, go and watch it. Um, <laughs> where he's, he's basically back. Is he still in He's position? still in his job. I don't know how he kept his job. Well, he, he won't was, after this, he, really. he, he, did, he, he was annoyed. He couldn't go play golf or tennis or something or because he had to go and deal with the media because of all these floods. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, so, so, Ben, we're talking about Auckland and we're talking about Lismore. Uh, mm. You know, Lismore's a, a small town in northern New South Wales. Auckland's, you know, you know, and it's not a world major capital. It's a nice capital, isn't it? You know, are there... Where else could this potentially affect? Well, um, over the next um, uh, over the next while, um, you know, thirty, fifty, hundred years, it's going to affect uh, Bangkok. It's going to affect London. It's going to affect Sydney. Uh, it's going to affect um, uh, communities that are uh, you know based around uh, harbors and, and and the sea. And there are billions and billions of people living there. So first of all, people are going to try and build walls. Well, to, we literally, to build, uh, yeah. most of our major cities were built because they were by a river historically, yeah. weren't they? They had yeah. to be connected to transport. Yeah. So there's not many places. That will be immune from it. Yeah. And and so you, you can see that um, the managed retreat is saying, well, when after this event, we're not going to build here again. Or when you can no longer um, ensure for the risk of these things, you have to move back. But it's not just floods, it's fires as well. And so um, it's happening on the extremes, uh, pretty much uh, as the climate scientists predicted. These ex- It's the extreme events and how you have to change the policy settings to deal with them. Uh, and the and the nature and rapidity of the of the storms that we face. So it's the storm impacts one after another well, after another. The impact I came across last month in Arizona was the lack of storm impact and the dryness and the lack of rain in a, in a different part of the world. But um, it, and it and it was massively impacting the local communities. So there's this lake called Lake Powell. Um, on the borders of um, Arizona. I think it's the second biggest reservoir in the state. Um, And it and the other reservoir uh, provide water for 40 million people. Um, And it's dropped by 72%. And it's the lowest it's been in uh, 1,200 years, 12 centuries that they can can make out. Um, And you can see the response to this is that um, people are building, because we went there because there's all these videos and promotions for water skiing, uh, houseboats, renting boats, fishing, all of these amazing recreational things around this water where this town called Page sort of um, lives off of that side of the tourism. Well, not for long. None of it's there. Oh, really? There's hundreds and hundreds, millions of dollars worth of houseboats just sat on on dry sides um, above it. The the pier to get to the river's gone. They've extended it like five metres at a time over and over again. The most pressing issue is that it's dropped, you know, I think, I have 60, 70 feet. It only has to go another few feet. And the hydroelectric power that generates for um, about five or six million people and loads of businesses in that, that side of the state, um, there's no hydroelectric power there. And, and it's these massive economic impacts that, that, that will force change, yeah. I, I, I think, more than, um, more than perceiving what might happen or, oh, that was a one-off flood. And then it's another one in another seven years or another one yeah. in another year. Um, it's these bloody hell, I've got no power. <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> what am I going to do? Yeah. And uh, look, the worst case scenario, of course, sorry, the best case scenario is, is that we're wrong and um, we end up with these fabulous, better lifestyles that we live. Um, I'm, I'm going to wrap up in a second, but I, I actually wanted to ask you, Ben, what is the best case scenario and what is the worst case scenario? And then maybe, Darren, how, how do humans have to 
change in order to actually achieve the best case scenario. So, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen now? Oh, well, you know, you can, the worst case scenario is extremely bad. Um, you have a kind of mass methane burp um, that drives temperatures rapidly higher. Well, like out of Siberia. And yeah, 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 the permafrost, you know, and, um, and that you have a, a system that's charged and you very rapidly get to, you know, four or five degrees warming within the next three, uh, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, that's the that that is you and know the impact on that on the humans. Oh, oh well, I mean it's on all life on the planet. I um, mean it's it's an accelerated mass extinction event. You know, so that's you know not to put too fine a point on it. Um, it's it's sort of press the re reset button uh, where we're not part of the we're not part of the mix and and there's a massive biodiversity loss across all species. That's not necessarily a bad thing for the planet. Well, so. actually, yeah, I get the sense of you if they will. You bloody deserved it. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, mostly I, I think parents quite like their children um, and their grandchildren. Uh, but as a species together, where the parents are saying, well, stuff the kids. Um, I, I just, we, we can't, I, my needs now are greater than their needs in the future. Um, and it's there's an incongruence about that because I, I actually think that most people don't think that, but collectively that seems to be how we're organising ourselves. So um, look, the downside um, is uh, extremely bad. Uh, the potential upsides are that we find a better balance, uh, that there's greater equity between uh, this generation and the next, between us and, and the natural world. Um, you know, what we've talked a lot about emissions in the last uh, little while, but we haven't talked about the biodiversity crisis that is a consequence of that. And we haven't talked about human population. You know, when I was born, there were three billion people on the planet. Um, I, I said he was old, Neil. I, uh, I am a fresh face, 60 something. But Are you really 60? Yeah, but they're, they're you know. It looks younger than both of us put together. Yeah, I lost that bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. But there's now 8 billion people. So that we think that that kind of growth, because we're, that's the period mm. that we've lived in, is normal. It's far from normal. It is, it, it, we are uh, an infection on the planet, essentially. Yeah. And so, more so um, than others. Yeah. And so uh, the, the, ups the, the upside, the upside is that we find a better balance um, and that we do value the, the life support systems that support us, the natural systems that support us, um, and that we do um, have a way of sharing the wealth between nations so that we can deal with um, population through uh, a better sharing of the resources of, uh, that are available, particularly educational resources. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, 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 and create a, you know, uh, a society that's not based on the myth of um, forever thinking we can grow on a finite planet. Yeah. Um, let's let's have let's have a return to um, some sense of the purpose of being here is to continue, not to destroy ourselves. And a lot of and that's we're on Wiradjuri country in New South Wales at the moment, and that was a culture of continuity. Yeah. Um, of of Wiradjuri uh, being the local indigenous. Yeah, community. being the local indigenous people, and, and most indigenous peoples around the world had a way of managing the resources 
in a way that ensured their continuity, but also the continuity of everything around them. And so that is the sunlit uplands. If we can reach a, uh, a, better, uh, a, a better paradigm of continuity, then we really will um, solve, solve a lot of these things. They're all technically feasible to solve. Yes, yeah. which brings me to the human part. Are Darren, are humans capable of doing this? What do we need to do to inspire us to no. get off our butts? And, you know? No, no. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know, but um, the thing is fear... Um, is a great motivator if you feel capable of addressing it. So um, otherwise it freezes you. Um, and we, we touched on that uh, uh, earlier on. Education or information does promote change, but barely any. Um, shame and guilt doesn't promote change particularly. We know that from your experience. <laughs> um, but what does is pride and hope and success, if people build on that. And it seems crap, but the point of this isn't ignoring the issues. It's saying we're addressing it, we're succeeding, let's do more of it. And that's proven in everything from business uh, to national movements, that that is what engenders more support, more action, and, and, and we can address it. So I think we've got to promote what we're doing. We've got the tools to do it. Let's get on and do it. This is where it's worked. And I think more and more and more will, will happen and people will get on board. Because, again, people are believing it, but they don't take action. And in, in the United States, in, in Washington, D.C., which is a pretty liberal place, they voted for um, uh, reducing carbon emissions and, and, and contributing to a, uh, or adhering to a carbon uh, uh, tax, uh, something along those lines. 67% of them in a poll said they support it, so they took it to legislation and it was smashed out um, because when it came to actually doing it, people didn't. Um, because yeah, but, but Darren, is that the difference between the way the political system works and who it's there for um, by comparison to what, uh, you know, the, it's the fact that the legislation didn't get up um, wasn't uh, wasn't people not wanting to take personal action on it. It's the way that we've set the political system up and whose interests it yeah. serves. So I suppose my human behavioural thing is about the motivators for action. Mm. But what you're saying, and, and what we've seen, is this desperation, this increasing gap between what the people want to do now yeah. and the political people that are looking after their own jobs. Uh, want to do their immediate motivations yeah mm. and it's when you get um people saying well our leaders are not um delivering the change that we know we need that's when you get uh you get the the changes that we need to see because you individual changes uh, must be part of the mix but it's the political changes that are actually going to need to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, again, not nudges, but legislative, yeah. financial, fiscal yeah. incentive. Yeah. Well, thank you both, both of you, both uh, for joining us, Ben. It's been a real pleasure having you here today. Thank you, as always, Dr. Darren Coffin, uh, behavioural scientist. Look, uh, hopefully we are ending on a place of hope that humans do have the capability to make changes. And that we're, you know, we have the chance to make the difference we need to make. Um, if you've enjoyed what we're listening, what, we, what we've been listening to today and watching, make sure you check out Budge. Uh, follow us on Facebook, on our Facebook group is a lot of fun, and on TikTok and on Instagram. But most of all, watch last week's episode next. Subscribe on YouTube uh, and watch out for us next Tuesday, 7 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for watching, listening. Done. Love you. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, Budge.